I'm Gerhard Lazi, and you're listening to Ship It Dot Show, a podcast about ops, infrastructure, and big tech. In today's episode, we talk to Ganesh Kumar, a software engineer in the Azure Kubernetes service team who works on node lifecycle and Kubernetes versioning. We are also joined by Brendan, Kubernetes project co-founder and engineering corporate vice president of Microsoft Azure Open Source and Cloud Native Compute. We talk about what it's like to work for Microsoft, how mentoring works in practice, and what Kubernetes, Omega, and Borg have to do with it all. Big thanks to our partners Fastly and Fly. This MP3 is served with minimal latency from the Fastly Edge location, which is closest to you. Our app and database run on fly.io because it keeps things simple. This episode is brought to you by Honeycomb. Find your most perplexing application issues. Honeycomb is a fast analysis tool that reveals the truth about every aspect of your application in production. Find out how users experience your code in complex and unpredictable environments. Find patterns and outliers across billions of rows of data and definitively solve your problems. And we use Honeycomb here at Changelove. That's why we welcome the opportunity to add them as one of our infrastructure partners. In particular, we use Honeycomb to track down CDN issues recently, which we talked about at length on the Kaizen edition of the Ship It podcast. So check that out. Here's the thing. Teams who don't use Honeycomb are forced to find the needle in the haystack. They scroll through endless dashboards playing whack-a-mole. They deal with alert floods, trying to guess which one matters. And they go from tool to tool to tool playing sleuth, trying to figure out how all the puzzle pieces fit together. It's this context switching and tool sprawl that are slowly killing teams' effectiveness and ultimately hindering their business. With Honeycomb, you get a fast, unified, and clear understanding of the one thing driving your business, production. With Honeycomb, you guess less and you know more. Join the swarm and try Honeycomb free today at honeycomb.io slash changelog. Again, honeycomb.io slash changelog. We are going to ship in three, two, one... Son Luong Nok, and I hope I pronounced it right, one of our listeners, he mentioned that he would very much be interested uh, to hear from the builders who made things happen in established big enterprise companies. And I'm quoting Son. So we have two guests today, which I think can help with that. Welcome, Ganesh, and welcome, Brandon. Thank you for having us. Really excited for the conversation today. Great to be here. Thanks for having us. So Son... One of his questions was, what is it like to work in a big company? And uh, I'm looking at you, Brandon. What is it like to work for Microsoft? Sure. I mean, I think that the most amazing positive thing that comes from it is just the opportunity to impact the world everywhere. Mm. Right. I, you know, I, I often say that effectively, no matter what you're interested in, whether it's gaming or aerospace or human rights, Microsoft is involved in it. In some, in some way. And so I think it's very easy both to find your passion, but also to maybe your passion is breadth impact. And for me, actually, it is really just opportunity to empower every single person in the world. There's only a few places where that's true, you know. What was the last thing or the last moment when you thought, wow, 
I contributed to that. And there was like a real world implication of something that you contributed towards. When was that last moment? Uh, positively or negatively? Uh, to you, I think they're both relevant. <laughs> maybe both, right? You know, I think that things like, uh, you know, the Forza 5 launch, uh, we were involved in helping that. It became game of the year. It's running on the Azure Kubernetes service. You know, tons of people, obviously that's a touch point for them, for their kids. Yeah. And that's awesome to see. You know, similarly during uh, the COVID pandemic, when we saw various health related services that needed to be spun up quickly and were being spun up on the platform. Similarly, in, in the negative, of course, like, you know, every time we have a customer facing service interruption, you know, we hear about the real world impact. And I think it's really important that we tell those stories because I think it helps people understand, you know, that we don't just do this because we want, you know, quality number to be at a certain number. We do this because people's lives depend on, on us doing a good job, right? Or, or there's real world impact when, when we have an interruption. So I think, you know, there's both a responsibility component to the kind of impact we have, but also just kind of an awesome component of like, I'll be at a party talking to somebody who really doesn't care about what I do at all, but is really excited about Forza. And like, you know, then I can connect it in and now maybe they're a little bit excited about what I do, right? Do you know, as I was listening to you, I was still stuck on that, Forza Horizon 5. It's a great game. I, it is a great game. A real story. My 12-year-old now, in 2015, we got the first console. It was the Xbox. It was a Forza Horizon Special Edition. And it remains our favorite game. So when Forza Horizon 5 came out, I pre-ordered months in advance. I could hardly wait for it to come out. And you contributing to that makes me feel even better. Makes it even more special. So thank you very much for that, Brendan. Ganesh, what is it like for you to work for Microsoft? Yeah, I think for me, it's been really exciting and a great opportunity to even learn about how it is operating in a large company. Mm -hmm. I think also the cool stuff like what Brendan mentioned about, you know, being in a team that contributes to Forza or platforms and companies like Forza use is quite satisfying. And even when I share it with friends or people who, you know, are in high school or in college who are not familiar with Kubernetes and cloud computing, the thing that everyone's excited about is Forza as well in my experience too. Mm -hmm. I think uh, working in Microsoft in particular, I feel like has been very aligned with my own personal uh, aims. Uh, I personally want to make a large scale positive and tangible impact on people. And Microsoft's mission of empowering every person and every organization on the planet to achieve more aligns very well with my personal aims. And even working in a, as part of this product of the Azure Kubernetes Service product helps me contribute to improving the efficiency for developers around the world, which I find to be quite satisfying. Let's say we make it easier to upgrade to new Kubernetes versions or improve the developer productivity through integrations like AKS with event grid integrations, I think uh, it gives me a lot of satisfaction to know that we've contributed to that and people are finding it easier to use as well. We will unpack that a bit later. I still want to keep focusing on the people because I'm fascinated by that. I think that is the first and foremost top of my mind. Like, what is it like from a people perspective? And I know that you and Brendan work together. How did you end up working with him? I mean, that's a very interesting story. So Brendan's the leader of this large uh, organization. And even for me personally, 
I had interned twice in Microsoft. So in my first summer, it was in this different team in part of Azure, but it was not in Brandon's org. And in that team, I was you know, learning about distributed systems and cloud computing, and that was my first exposure to these uh, areas. And my manager, mentor, and another engineer on the team would share about you know, recent developments in the field, and one of the things that they shared was this paper called Borg Omega and Kubernetes. And it, it turns out that Brandon was the co-author of that paper, and when I read it, I was quite impressed by you know, what I'd learned. And then when I found out that he was the co-author and he was working at Microsoft, I was uh, very excited by it. And you know, I wanted to learn more about Kubernetes. And it seemed uh, quite interesting, which made me switch into the Azure Kubernetes service team the next summer, which is part of Brandon's org. Mm. So that's sort of how I uh, became involved in the space. And even in the internship, for instance, Brandon would organize or one-on-ones and officers with interns, uh, which I thought was just amazing, you know, given how senior he is and how many people he leads. And uh, in that process, I was also able to learn about how he thinks and you know, how he envisions the future of cloud-native computing to evolve. And that's sort of how I've been learning from sort of his uh, experience. Okay, so Borg, Omega, and Kubernetes, that will come up again, I'm sure. Uh, still sticking with the people. Mm-hmm. What is your perspective, Brandon, working with Ganesh? Like, how did that came to be from your end? Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the most important things that I can do is to connect with people as they start to be part of Microsoft or part of my organization. You know, it's it's sort of trite, but, you know, there's no time like the first time to sort of help make an impression and help make sure that, you know, people have an understanding of what we're trying to do and what the culture is that we're trying to set. But also to get that fresh perspective, I always say that, you know, I want the person who really has no expectations or who, who comes in and, you know, doesn't know how things have been or isn't used to how things have been. That sort of fresh perspective is extremely, extremely valuable to me both for how the organization is working and also, frankly, how our product is working, right? So that person who maybe has never used Kubernetes and comes into the AKS documentation, tries to make it work, maybe gets some of it working, but it's like this part over here I really didn't understand. That's critical feedback for us, right? And I think especially the interns are really great because they give you very unvarnished, let's say unvarnished feedback. Right? They are not shy about sharing where they see problems and things like that. And I think that's just a tremendous source of information for us to do better. So I think that, you know, I, I really view it as me helping make the organization and helping make the product that we have better. Um, you know, I think that's, it's, it's probably the most important usage of my time, frankly. Wow, that sounds spot on. I mean, honestly, I mean, even for me, if I was in your position, I could not do it better focusing on the people, focusing on the connections, focusing on that fresh pair of eyes perspective, that is so valuable. And I'm very glad that you see it the same way too, because invaluable, like, you know, untarnished. You're like, what is this? And the excitement, the joy, the discovery, and you're at your in your best place to play with things, going back to four to five, very important. Homo ludens, very important, right? We love to play. And just like everything is a game and everything is exciting, and uh, that sounds that sounds amazing. What made you pick Ganesh specifically? I, how, like, did you pick him? How did that happen? Uh, a set of coincidences? Like, how did you two end up 
working together? Because I think that's... Well, I mean, I think actually the, the truth is that uh, I really try and make these opportunities available to, uh, especially the interns within my organization, mm -hmm. to do an exit, you know, to do office hours and to do an exit interview with all of the interns in the organization. You know, because also I think at the end of the day, these are the people who carry back what Azure is to their colleagues and to their friends and to their campuses, right? So, you know, they come, they're out of place, they separate out and some go to Google and some go to Meta and some go to AWS and some come to us and then they come back together, right? And, you know, I'll say selfishly, I want everybody to be jealous of the people who decided to come to Microsoft and who decided to come to Azure. And, and I think there's a lot of good reasons for that. But I also want to check in and make sure, like, if they didn't have a great experience, why not? And what did we do wrong? But also, I want to have a chance to check in and help set up a connection for the future. Because I would say also one of the things that's important is I don't necessarily, like, while I love that Ganesh came back to Microsoft and to the AKS team, I also want the people who go off and do startups and the people who go off into other companies, I want them to choose Azure. Right. You know, at the end of the day, they're going to have a choice of cloud providers or whatever, and they're going to be in a company where eventually, maybe at the beginning or maybe later on, they'll have a position to influence. And, you know, I want them to choose Azure. And, and I think the only way that I can actually make that happen is by understanding if we're doing a good job. So I think that's, the, you know, it's not a, uh, you know, a unique thing. I don't think it's not a unique thing even for the interns. I do. I have office hours every month and whoever wants to in the organization or even sometimes beyond the organization can sign up and we just have a one-on-one -on -one and talk about whatever they want to talk about. Um, okay. How can people that are curious about this maybe, are there some public links? Is this like open to anyone? How can they access that? <laughs> Currently it's Microsoft employees. Okay. I guess I would say like if you're curious about my thoughts and you're out there and you're not in Microsoft, you know, I'm obviously up on Twitter. And you can hit me up on Twitter, and and I'm happy to discuss. Th I discuss things there. I discuss non-tech related things too. I've I posted some fascinating stuff that I learned about the cleaning of the Ballard Locks, which is the big thing in Seattle where the water go one of the lakes connects to the sea. And it was mm -hmm. I just discovered it this morning, and I was like, this is fascinating. Other people should learn about this. I have to check it out. That's the one thing which I haven't checked. I haven't checked your Twitter, but I will have a look and maybe even add a link to the in, in the show notes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And a recent postmortem of um, me making hot water instead of coffee for the household. Fascinating. So. <laughs> that one was pretty funny. I yeah. <laughs> like how he did the RCA. Of <laughs> I had some fun. I had some fun with it. I had some fun with it, I have to admit. Okay, so I think it's universal. We are all nerds <laughs> in different ways and we will always take every opportunity to nerd out. So there's something that you mentioned, Brendan. I want to go back to Ganesh because I think it's important. Why did you choose Azure Ganesh? For me, I think uh, related to what we were saying earlier, working on something that has a very large scale impact is something that I personally uh, enjoy doing and for a very long time at as well, I've been wanting to work on projects which have this large scale impact. And Azure is used by organizations around the world like we talked about. And the changes we make there and the improvements we make there have significant like cascading effects uh, downstream. So that's been very satisfying for me to, to see whether we are able to fix security issues quicker or improve productivity in different aspects. It really trickles down to developers and eventually to users who are not even technical. So that's been a very satisfying for me to sort of uh, be part of. And I think the other aspect that I like about Azure is also learning about 
how all these distributed systems components are like connected and how different layers of the stack come together to actually create a great product for users and how as a large organization uh, we continue improving upon that as well so i think being part of azure uh, gives me exposure to a lot of it and you know i'm able to learn and contribute to those aspects and through my internships i was able to see what azure was doing and what it could do and i think that's why i wanted to you know continue working on azure i will go one step further because uh, I really liked how Brendan talked about it, where there's all these options, people that can go, uh, young engineers, they can go to Meta or AWS or Google, and some pick Microsoft. So going back to that context, why Microsoft? What made you pick Microsoft? I think it sounds a little cliche, but I do really resonate with the, the mission of the company and also my experiences interning. So I essentially did six months of internships in Microsoft. So I knew what the organization was like, what the team was like. You know, I had, you know, inner day to day experience working with them. So and I was confident that Microsoft was doing the right thing. And, you know, a lot of things that Microsoft does are very transparent, both internally and externally, which also resonate with my personal values. So I think those aspects were quite important in helping me like, make this decision to uh, return to Microsoft full time. So uh, that's primarily why. For all our listeners, what is that mission statement that resonated with you? Yeah, I think Microsoft's mission is to empower every person and every organization on the planet to achieve more. And I see this throughout the organization where people are aligned with this mission and they want to contribute to products and features that make it easier for you know, developers and users to build their own products and mm -hmm. you know, uh, use, run their applications easily and so on. So that part, I, I see that even the actions aligned with the missions. So right. I think uh, that's that's great to see, uh, especially as an intern when I could observe it, you know, over six months in two internships. So, and, you know, I was happy to see that, you know, the day-to-day -day experience was aligned with the stated mission and values. Okay. So I know that Brendan is your mentor and I'm wondering, what does it even mean to be a mentor? Because, you know, I've had people approach me and I'm wondering whether it's a personal thing or whether, what is it to be a mentor to you, Brandon? I think this is a very important learning lesson for me right now. So I'm all ears. I, I mean, I think it's a combination of things, right? I think some of it is to kind of help people learn from your own mistakes, mm. right? Like if you have everybody makes the same mistakes over and over again, like everybody eventually arrives at the same place, but it's kind of inefficient. Doesn't mean that you've made a lot of mistakes and you have a lot of wisdom to share. Uh, I've made I've made a lot of mistakes. Oh yeah, for okay. sure, for sure, right? I mean, I think all learning at some level is based on making mistakes, right? So I think that's part of it, right? Like I've spent a long time in the industry. I've seen a lot of things. I, I think the other part of is, is historical perspective, right? I, I, for me anyway, a lot of times when I'm thinking about how do I make decisions in the technical world, I'm casting back over my own experiences, whether it was, you know, Linux versus FreeBSD in the late 90s or, you know, other kinds of moments in the tech industry and trying to find the analogy so that I can, mm -hmm. you know, help explain today in the context of the past. And I think sometimes people, like if you didn't live it, you don't have the same understanding as, you know, if you're reading about it or, or anything else like that. So I think part of the mentorship is also just giving people that 
historical perspective, but also giving them a, a, a place to bring, you know, concerns uh, or questions. I think that, I mean, to be honest, I think a mentor, while it's good to have a you know, mentor in your organization, sometimes it's also really good to have a mentor who's outside of the organization who you can really bring anything to. That's also, I think, valuable, that independent perspective. So I think all of those, I mean, you know, in my mind, it's not that different from being a teacher. It's just a little bit more of a focused, it's a two, maybe maybe like a focused one-on-one discussion as opposed to anything else. But I also would say, like, I usually bring it, I let, I let people bring their own agenda. Hmm. I'm always really clear with people. Like, I'm here to be of service to you. I don't really give, I don't give assignments or anything. Like, I mean, I don't think that's mentorship, really. I think it's, it's like you bring the agenda, you bring the questions, and then we'll see where it goes. Okay. Do you have a mentor? Uh, I have at times had, had mentors it, recently. I, recently, I would say that my mentorship experiences have been a little bit more one-off around specific things. You know, like, hey, I really want to work on, you know, this particular aspect. And someone says, hey, this person's really good at it. And I go and, you know, we sort of role, I would say we sort of role play through discussions where I'm like, you know what, I don't think, like, we had a discussion and that thing, it came out more, you know, I heard back through the grapevine that someone really thought that I was being too overbearing or I was being too micromanaging. And I, and I, you know, being able to role play through that with someone else and being like, okay, here's what the situation was. Here's what I did. What would you do? And then just listen to their, I mean, it's kind of like watching somebody else do a sport or play a well, actually, not for me. Like when I watch other people do sports, I see things that I couldn't ever do. Yeah. But fortunately, in the tech world, you know, when we talk through it, I'm like, oh, actually, I think I could do that. So I think that's valuable. Brandon, high jumping. I cannot imagine that. <laughs> oh my god, high jumping is that's so cool. It's so cool, but I'm not able to do that. I have no. Exp- I did actually pole vault. I used to pole vault. Oh, wow. Wow. Okay. Not very well. No, I pole vaulted in. I was a distance runner. I, I still am a distance runner. I was a distance runner in high school and college. Um, mm-hmm. But in high school, I really wanted to pole vault also. Right. And so I convinced the coach to let me pole vault, and I pole vaulted. And then in college, every once in a while, like we would need a couple extra points, and the coach would be like, "Hey, you can pole vault, and you can get over the minimum height, and we can get a couple extra. You can finish last, but we'll still. There's few enough pole vaulters that even if you finish last, you'll still get us a couple of points. So okay, you go where you're needed. That sounds like a setup for success. Like you know, he knew what he was doing. He was a good coach. <laughs> Talking about mentorship. He was eking out every last every last point. Nice, you know? nice. I heard Brandon has uh, you know records for running, and you know he challenges people in his art to beat it. <laughs> I do. We have a giving campaign uh, every year, which is one of the things. I mean, you talk about Microsoft and culture. One of the things that I really value, in addition to the empowering everyone to do more, is that sense of Microsoft as a member of the community. Mm. And Microsoft Give every year is a focus on philanthropy and giving back. And, and I think that is huge and just resonates so well with me personally. Um, but as part of that, there's a 5K, there's a charity 5K. And so there is a standing offer within the org that anyone who runs faster than me in that 5K, I will donate you know, a significant amount of money to the, to the charity if they, uh, okay. if they ever beat me. And actually, one person did. So there was a guy, he's no longer in the org. Um, That's why he's no longer in the org. <laughs> he beat you. He beat Brandon. <laughs> You're out, sir. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. He left. He left voluntarily. But yeah, there was a guy actually, and and he was really fast. What is the time to beat? So it's a five k, five k distance. Last year I went uh, just under nineteen minutes. Just under nineteen minutes. Okay. 
1859. 1859, okay. Flat surface? Ish. Ish, okay. I mean, it wasn't a track, but it was a relatively, it was around a lake. Okay. It's been virtual for the, so the, the, the one on Microsoft campus, which they've done in the past, is a little bit more hilly. Mm. Last year, because of the pandemic, it was virtual. Mm-hmm. So I went to a lake near my house, and actually a few of us got together and did it. Okay. 1859, so dear listener, that is the time to beat. If you can beat Brandon, <laughs> go and talk to him. <laughs> All right. Plenty of people do. I mean, plenty of yeah. people do. And, and I'm old at this point. That's not my fastest ever. That's just my fastest as a 46-year-old. Right. What is your fastest ever? My fastest ever was 1509. 1509. Okay. Now, that is a good one. Okay. Wow. How old were you when you did that? Do you remember? Uh, well, it was, was senior year in college, so I was uh, 22. Okay. Okay. And that was on a track. We're very competitive. I know I am. So I will look into that. <laughs> That's what I can do about that. Ganesh, what are your thoughts? I have a feeling that some of your listeners are going to listen to this and they'll join Microsoft so that during the GIF campaign, they can attempt to beat his record. So Mission accomplished, Brendan. Mission accomplished. <laughs> you, gotta join my, you, have to, you have to join my organization. Though. Right. There you go. So very important. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I think that's going to be likely. <laughs> Someone's going to do that. This episode is brought to you by Sourcegraph. With the launch of their Code Insights product, teams can now track what really matters in their code base. Code Insights instantly transforms your code base into a queryable database to create visual dashboards in seconds. And I'm here with Joel Kortler, the product manager of Code Insights for Sourcegraph. Joel, the way teams can use Code Insights seems to pretty much be limitless, but a particular problem every engineering team has is tracking versions of languages or packages. How big of a deal is it actually to track versions for teams? Yeah, it's a big deal for a couple of reasons. The first is, of course, just compatibility. You don't want things to break when you're testing locally or to break on your CI systems or test systems. You need to have some sort of level of like version unification and minimum version support and all of that needs to be you know, compatible forward. But the other thing we learned was that for a lot of customers, especially you know, engineering organizations that are pretty established, they have older versions of things or even older versions of like SaaS tools they don't use anymore that they haven't fully removed because they're like not sure if it's still in use or they you know lost focus on that. And they're spinning up old virtual machines that they're still paying for. Or they're using, you know, old SaaS subscriptions they're afraid to cancel because they're not sure if anyone's actually using it. And so getting off of those versions not just like saves you the headaches and the risks and the vulnerabilities of being on old versions, but also literally the money of, you know, older systems running more slowly or the build times or, you know, virtual machines and SaaS tools that you're no longer using. Before you had this ability, we talked to teams, there are basically three ways you could do this. You could slack a million people and ask for just like an update point in time. You could have sort of one human and one spreadsheet where like it's somebody's job every Friday or every two weeks to just like search all the code and find all the versions and write it down in a Google sheet. Or there were a couple of companies that I came across with in-house systems that were sort of complicated. You had to know, you know, maybe Kotlin, but you didn't know Kotlin. But if you wanted to use the system, you had to learn Kotlin and you'd have to sort of build the whole world from scratch and run basically a tool like this with a pretty steep learning curve. And now for all three of those, you could replace it with a single line source graph search, which is basically just the name of the thing you're trying to track and the version string in the right format. And then we have templates that'll help you get started if you're not sure what that format is. And then it'll automatically track all the different versions for you, both historically. So even if you start using it today, you can see your historical patterns. And then of course, going forward. Very cool. Thank you, Joel. So right now there is a treasure trove 
of insights just waiting for you living inside your code base right now teams are tracking migrations adoption deprecations they're detecting and tracking versions of languages and packages they're removing or ensuring the removal of security vulnerabilities they understand their code by team they can track their code smells and health and they can visualize configurations and services and so much more with code insights a good next step is to go to about.sourcegraph.com slash code dash insights see how other teams are using this awesome feature again about.sourcegraph.com slash code dash insights this link is in the show notes so I had a great time talking about like this, uh, focusing on the people, focusing on the culture, and I hope that our listeners enjoyed it too up to this point. I think now it's time to maybe switch to technology. That's what I'm thinking. And we will start with something that Craig McLucky said in the Kubernetes documentary. By the way, I watched both parts. It's an amazing one. We talked about it in, in, in the past. And I think this is a good time to rewatch it. I'll put the links in the show notes. And Craig McLucky says, and I quote, I think that Brendan is a creative genius. If you spend two days with Brendan, he will throw off 10 ideas, any of which could actually change the world. So Brendan, how did the Kubernetes idea came to be (laughs) and what happened after it was shared with the world? Yeah, so I mean, I I think credit really is due to Joe and Craig and myself together. I mean, we were working really closely together on things and, and it was all three of us kind of being contextualized. You know, I think the context was we were really thinking about, like I had built a bunch of distributed systems and then because of some reorganizations, I had moved into the public cloud organization from the search organization. And I suddenly started experiencing how people were building applications and deploying applications onto virtual machines. And it was like really, really primitive and hard, right? I guess maybe primitive is the wrong word because it isn't super negative. It was just really hard and flaky, yeah. right? Like you'd do a really good job building a deployment engine and it would work 85% of the time, 90% of the time, you know, like not even a single nine kind of percentages, right? And so we just knew that there were better ways to do this. And simultaneously, Craig and Joe had done the, they'd built the virtual machine infrastructure, but they were looking at like, how do we help move beyond this effectively? And we knew that containers were an essential component of this. But to be completely honest, we didn't know how to make people understand that containers were important and get them to adopt containers. And so a lot of our initial conversations were about that part of it, of like, like how do we get people to be into this mindset? And what happened was Docker came along and just convinced everybody for us, right? And so I think an important part of the Kubernetes story is to say that, like, without Docker, I don't think there's a Kubernetes. Yeah. They broke ground here in terms of getting people interested and thinking about it. And so we saw that in the early days, and we started sort of tracking the open source project on GitHub and paying attention to the community. But I think that what we saw as it was sort of evolving was that we could sort of see into the future because we'd lived it in the past. And, or another thing we said at the time was it was a little bit like everybody had all these puzzle pieces that they were sort of randomly trying to put together, but we had the puzzle box that had the picture of what it's supposed to look like at the end. And I had this vivid memory of going to the very first Docker meetup in Seattle, and it was in probably November of 2013. 
and exiting that meetup. And, and I come as kind of like a to understand the community and all this kind of stuff, right? And I ended up basically doing a tutorial, like an interactive tutorial on Docker and containers during the meetup because there was just a ton of interest and excitement, but nobody really knew, like they knew they should be excited, but they weren't quite sure why, right? And so leaving that, I just had this incredible sense of this opportunity to build something that would take all this excitement and, and could transform the way that the industry was was moving. And we knew that it had to be open source. Docker was open source. We knew that in order to be successful, it was op- it had to be open source. And so that was a whole other aspect of it. And I came back from that meetup that night uh, to the office the next morning, and Joe and Craig and I sat near each other, and we just talked through it and what we could do. And you know, started out with a demo to kind of gain support and illustrate what, what it could do. Really just kind of glued together a bunch of existing open source components to, for the first POC demo. Okay. And it just sort of went from there, right? What was the puzzle box for you? Because you mentioned containers, they just convinced the world for you, but the world didn't have the puzzle box, didn't have like everything else around it. They, they knew containers were important, they understood Docker, it was simple, but there was way much more than just that. What did that look like? It was like the developer-oriented API, right? It was, you know, we'd been used to building cloud APIs, but all of the old cloud APIs were all infrastructure-based. It's all like virtual machine, virtual disk, virtual network, virtual... They're not developer-focused, they're Mm infrastructure-focused. And so, you know, we said, first of all, Docker and containers, as they're currently talked about, are kind of really focused on a single machine. But every application that we know of and that everyone wants to build is a multi-machine application. And so we have to provide something that kind of abstracts away from the machine and gives a orchestrator view. And I think for some people in the community at the time, they said, no, no, like, well, actually, we'll just give them the same view. It'll just be across multiple machines, but it'll kind of look like it's one machine. And we sort of said, no, you know, from experience, we know that that jump from a single machine to multiple machines, you need to introduce new abstractions. You need to introduce replication and rollouts and service load balancing and, you know, all of these components that aren't really present on a machine, but are present in that orchestrated layer. And you need to build that piece of software that's going to do the orchestration. And so things like the pod, things like what we called a replication controller originally, but became replica set and eventually deployment and the service, service load balancer became like the core ideas that we were trying to express and that we were trying to talk about. And then that sort of, you know, restful API, distributed, resilient API was also an important part of it. Again, kind of getting it from being a daemon that runs on every machine to being a service that runs across a bunch of machines. Okay. What about you, Ganesh? What was it like when you started with Kubernetes? Because I'm sure your perspective was very different to Brenton's. Yeah, definitely. So for me, it was quite a new paradigm for thinking about software as well. And even thinking about sort of how uh, code is run in infrastructure in the cloud, it's it's very different from what you do in college. So, in, you know, most of my courses were focused on, you know, running code on your machine. And, you know, when I was doing some training of ML models and so on, it was, okay, it was using cloud computing and running on different machines, but not at the scale at which, you know, Azure operates or, uh, you know, a lot of production grade software operates. So even a lot of the analogies that Brandon used uh, and comparisons he did with previous technologies, you know, I did not have that as a reference. So Kubernetes for me was also 
the first time in which I was uh, learning about many of these concepts uh, around mm-hmm. deployments and resilience uh, and so on. So there were sort of two parts. I guess one part was even before Kubernetes, I did in my first internship in Microsoft, I got exposure to you know how rollouts are done and so on um, without using Kubernetes. And then in my second internship, you know, I had exposure to AKS and Kubernetes when I was interning in the team. So for me, uh, learning about Kubernetes, I think, has definitely been something where, you know, I explicitly spent time, you know, learning from docs and actually even Brendan's uh, videos on YouTube on Kubernetes, you know, I watched them. So, you know, for me, it was also cool to actually meet the person behind the videos too. So uh, that was nice. And I think also working on different projects within AKS has like helped me learn about uh, you know various kubernetes concepts and one of the uh, things that i worked on is kubernetes versioning for aks which is supporting new versions of kubernetes uh, on aks so that process especially for minor versions involves many api deprecations and you know flag changes like kubelet flag changes and so on that we would need to handle so as part of uh, debugging Kubernetes code there, looking at all these different components within AKS and so on actually helped me become better at getting a you know framework of Kubernetes like and the models of Kubernetes in, in my mind. And, you know, and I think it's still an ongoing process. Uh, there's so much in this space. So uh, yeah. it's been a good journey. That's very interesting. What are your thoughts on the Kubernetes release process, the versioning? Because I know there have been some recent changes. It's now being signed. Um, a lot of changes around the release process. And it's very complicated because it's such a complicated piece of software. So many contributors, so many different par- components to it. How do you view the release process as an end user that then has to help curate it for AKS? Yeah, that's a great question. And... Uh, just as background too, when I even when I joined AKS full time, I did not think too much about how new versions of Kubernetes come up in AKS. You know, I sort of thought that you know they just showed up. <laughs> I was sort of very naive in my thinking there, but then I learned about how you know oftentimes you need to make changes internally to actually support that. So, like you mentioned, yes, uh, in this case. I'm more of a user of what the upstream Kubernetes release teams do for versions. And I think, you know, there's, I guess, the parts that are helpful are, you know, all the release notes and documentation, and they provide high-level summaries of what changes are going to be available. I think that's sort of quite helpful, even in the process of making changes and in AKS. Because uh, especially in AKS, there are so many edge cases and different sort of uh, scenarios that we need to address for customers because there are so many different customers. So getting a good overview of the major changes in minor versions is uh, helpful. I think the part that uh, I think, you know, I'm still thinking about and perhaps could be improved as well is in terms of making it easier to handle some of these API deprecations and flag removals and so on. Some part of it is manual, even though, you know, you do there's like various mechanisms to figure out whether an API version is being deprecated and so on. I think some part there perhaps could be improved. And I think, I know it's a complex process as well with all these fixes coming in and you know some of it going through you know, patch versions and so on. And AKS internally also has you know, additional back, uh, you know, backports of hotfix patch versions to previous 
patch versions and so on that only AKS has, like AKS that supports. So uh, you know the overall process as well. There's like a lot of moving parts, and it's been you know interesting to see how that plays overall. And uh, for me too, I think it's a great opportunity to sort of collaborate as well with the upstream team within both uh, Brandon's org and also in uh, the broader community to sort of make sure that the main features and changes that they're doing can be fronted to users through AKS. What are your thoughts, Brandon, on the Kubernetes, on the current Kubernetes release process? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things, Ganesh mentioned the upstream team, uh, which is one another team in my organization that focuses on engagement with the upstream open source project. And I think in order to do a good job of both understanding how releases happen and also potentially influence how re- releases happen, you know, we have to be engaged. And we've had members of my team be the release leads for the open source project, not for AKS, but for the whole Kubernetes open source project. It's a totally thankless job, effectively, of like herding all of the cats of this giant project into a release. But that means that we have an intimate understanding of not just what each release looks like, but also how the broader release is evolving. And, you know, recently there was a slowdown from four releases a year to three releases a year in effectively reaction to the broader community sort of saying like, oh my gosh, we cannot keep up with this pace of change. I think the developer community as well, right? Like the internal Kubernetes developer community as well, sort of saying like, we need to slow down. Like we can't just keep jamming more and more code into this thing. But I think the real difference that I, that I see in releasing Kubernetes versus releasing it for AKS is exactly what Ganesh is talking about, which is, you know, for AKS, a lot of what at scale means or at, at hyperscale means is incredibly diverse customer workloads, right? From large scale machine learning, batch jobs, all the way through to real time serving, telephony, you know, even like Teams calls. And upgrade has to work for every single one of them, right? And the upgraded Kubernetes has to work for every single one of them. And, you know, it's not even just about the workload. Sometimes it's also about, like, what API features did they decide to use, you know? And, and one thing we learned early on in the Kubernetes project is no matter how much you call it beta, if it's stuck around for two or three years, you may as well call it GA, because people will have treated it like it's GA and you will have set the expectation because it hasn't changed. And the minute you change it, it causes amazing ripple effects. And frankly, like you can't, once you have a certain number of users, you don't have the option of saying like, well, but we said it was beta and you're all broken. Good luck. Right. Like that, like that doesn't fly in AKS really at a certain scale. Right. Because it's sort of the principle of least surprise, I guess, at some level. Like if you haven't touched it in two years, like people are going to assume that it's stable because it was stable. And so I think that's the real distinction that, that is important for all of the Kubernetes providers, especially for you know, Azure, because that's the one I worry about, is you know, how do we get that rock-solid reliability so that when the person presses the button or when the event grid that uh, Ganesh was talking about triggers and, and someone automatically upgrades, it works. And, and then tracking also, like we keep track of the SLO for that upgrade to make sure that we actually are validating it and that we are achieving it. And sometimes that involves actually going back into the release and finding p- uh, fixes and, as construction carrying patches to help while you're upstreaming those patches and things like that, right? Um, as well as, of course, you know, something that, that Ganesh didn't mention, which is ha- making sure that also we handle CVEs and, and we get notifications as a provider 
actually in front of the CVE release because we're on the embargo list. And so we can ensure that our customers are patched and secure on day zero of, you know, a vulnerability. Mm -hmm. And that they can either choose to upgrade or in some cases they'll receive an automatic upgrade, kind of depending on the severity of the security issue. Yeah. So based on the metrics that you have, are the Kubernetes releases going in the right direction? Are things improving? What do the metrics say? Well, I guess what I would say is like we have always and we continue to do a lot of work to make sure that AKS upgrade is extremely stable. I think the Kubernetes releases themselves are pretty stable, but our customer base, the diversity of our customer base is just not something that goes into those releases. Have you had any surprises in recent months or let's say this year that you weren't expecting something that astonished you or surprised you? I don't think, it, I don't, no, no, I don't think it's anything you're not expecting necessarily. I mean, maybe Ganesh has a different perspective. Um, I don't think it's a question of like what you're not expecting. It's more of a sort of like something slipped through, like something slowed down if you're running 10,000 node clusters or something, you know, starts using more memory. It, sorry, sorry. Like it's, it's little stuff. It's not like, oh my gosh, they deprecated this API and nobody knew they were going to deprecate it. Like that kind of stuff is really well documented and and all that sort of thing i think it's much more of the like well if you're going to run tens of thousands of clusters for different customers in different environments there will be edge cases and not every single one of those is going to get fully vetted and tested in um, but i'd be curious to hear ganesh's perspective on that yeah i think in terms of users we want to make sure they're not surprised by anything so that's the priority for the aks team as well so, so that it's smooth for them. And internally, when I am helping uh, in terms of onboarding new Kubernetes versions, for me, yeah, there have been sort of surprises there, at least from what I expected. And, you know, there's a lot of people in AKS as well who are experienced in various components of both AKS and Kubernetes, and they also help in making sure that we handle those uh, surprises correctly. So, I mean, while the release notes, I think they do a good job in terms of giving an overview of what the major changes are uh, with new minor versions. You know, I think sometimes there have been what felt a little unexpected, like port changes, which, um, you know, port changes which end up affecting some uh, component in AKS. And mm -hmm. I think uh, a lot of other engineers in AKS, uh, before I even joined, had created this great uh, suite of end-to-end -end tests which uh, also catch many of these issues. So, you know, for me, in that sense, it was like debugging it with other people to find out what the root cause of that issue was so that in AKS catches those issues before customers, uh, you know, even get it. And even, you know, we had this internal call with a customer and I was able to ask them if they had seen any surprises with API changes with the, because of uh, new Kubernetes versions and, you know, he had mentioned that he had not experienced it. I think that goes to speak uh, about AKS itself handling those uh, issues for them. And I think that also goes back to the initial point where I was talking about how we are improving productivity for many users uh, who run on AKS by working on these changes by ourselves. Because if you were to be running your own Kubernetes clusters, I think you would have to worry more about, you know, these feature flag changes, let's say Kubelet had these flag deprecations in KH124, so you have to like think about all of that, uh, versus if you are in AKS, you don't have to think about that ideally, because we'll handle it for you. And because so many users use AKS, I think 
the net impact of us handling it also saves them a lot of time which is mm-hmm. uh, quite satisfying to know yeah and it's also cool to see people tweet about it you know the new kubernetes versions being supported in aks and or you know us supporting new kubernetes versions really fast soon after its release upstream so that's nice that's interesting how long does it take you to roll out a new kubernetes version in aks so i think for minor versions it sort of depends we aim for it to be soon after it's released i think there it's you also mentioned about how it ties with the upstream release cycle and you know we sometimes test with rc versions or alpha and beta versions even before uh, the uh, 0.0 version is released for a minor version so so that we can identify many of those changes earlier so we really target for soon after it's released but you know we have this like release cycle on on the website where we give a, a little bit more conservative estimates which is typically at most a month after it's released but we tend to also aim for faster timelines yeah, it's usually sooner okay okay now i know that aks really is just was like a base layer there's so many things plugging into it and i think brendan you're alluding to it like microsoft teams huge systems that depend on the aks stability on the aks just availability all that so what other things tie into aks because you know there's a lot there must be and not just software, but also integrations, also things that just make use of AKS as the starting point. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, I think this is one of the places where we do really believe we have something unique. When you look at the broader Microsoft ecosystem, we can connect all the way from VS Code, where somebody's doing their editing, and we have implemented a Kubernetes extension there that does things like you know highlighting best practices. So if you don't put resource limits on your application description, we'll put a little red squiggly line in there and you know highlight the fact that you don't have a best practice, as well as capabilities about introspecting running applications so that you can really easily and securely connect to pods in your cluster for debugging, collect logs, look at configuration files easily, you know, kind of really try and provide that streamlined Kubernetes experience. And, and all of that actually is done not just for AKS users, but for any Kubernetes user using VS Code. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then, of course, we also add on and have some really great capabilities for AKS users in VS Code, where people can run security scans of their cluster, get best practices. And that security aspect also inter- you know, shows we do integration with things like uh, Azure Defender that can you know, it's a different Microsoft product that can work and provide recommendations and scanning of your cluster. Obviously, people use a container registry with AKS, and we have a bunch of integrations, both to get images pushed into the container registry, but also to consume images out of the container registry. And, you know, monitoring solutions that work on top. We've had a development of the open service mesh that is a service mesh solution that's integrated into AKS and supported. Because I think a lot of times when people look at some of these open source componentry, like one of the biggest hurdles to adoption is, you know, who do I call if it breaks? Like, do I need to become an expert? I mean, as Ganesh was talking about, like, we're, we are experts in Kubernetes for people, but we also are experts in, you know, the open service mesh. And so we can provide that as a supported service. You know, we're experts in, well, the monitoring team, which is, is outside of my organization, but is experts in monitoring, and they can provide monitoring for Kubernetes, and, but also to integrate that with open source solutions, whether it's Prometheus or Grafana for cloud-native monitoring. Uh, so I, I think we absolutely try and take that perspective that you know, we're a piece, AKS is a piece of a broader tool set, and how do we ensure that people can use those end-to-end. 
use the great Microsoft ones when it's when they want to, but also be able to plug in other componentry if they don't. You know, if they want to use a different service mesh and they're willing to stand up a team to support it, fantastic. It'll work on top of AKS, right? We don't want to have them forced into the any particular choices, but you definitely want to provide them with that sort of streamlined glide path that gets them successful as quick as possible. I think that's one of the advantages of choosing Kubernetes. You have all this this uh, incredibly rich ecosystem uh, that is available. And by the way, when you want support for specific components, guess what? There's like a whole org behind it. And it's like all end-to-end -end and the integrations because that we all know how long it takes to pick the right plugin for VS Code and make sure it works. Like, like little things like that. It is the integrations that get you not necessarily specific things because they can work well, but put together, that's where surprises happen. And having someone that focuses on that, I think it's not a thankless job, but it's an invisible job because people are thankful, but it's like there's so much to it. Echoing what Ganesh said earlier about empowering people and productivity, like that's the stuff that really resonates, right? Is that like knowing that the work that we do just takes away toil and burden from, from other folks. I really resonate with a lot of what Brandon said. And also, I think it ties into, Gerard, the question you posed from your audience member about what it's like working in a big organization and a big company like Microsoft. I think uh, it's interesting to see uh, how you know different components that are owned by teams, many of which are in Brandon's org, but also outside Brandon's org in other parts of Microsoft, like how they come together so that users are having a seamless experience. Mm -hmm. For instance, if you're gonna use Windows containers, that's, uh, you know, it involves code from Windows and other, other parts which, uh, you know, as a user, you may not realize that, okay, maybe it's in different orgs and so on, but your experience still needs to be smooth. So seeing how that collaboration happens across teams as well has been something that, you know, I've been learning as well as an engineer sort of early in career at Microsoft. And then I think uh, AKS as well, because it fronts a lot of services uh, in Azure and in Microsoft, I think has this sort of uh, responsibility in terms of making sure that, you know, end-to-end -end things work well. And which is why I think the AKS team as well is very collaborative with multiple teams within Brandon's org and outside of it, uh, so that users have a good end-to-end -end experience. And even recently, you know, I was talking to a teammate and he has been, uh, driving the Azure Draft product, which makes it easier for users to basically containerize their workloads. And, you know, there's also like GitHub integrations that he's working on. So, you know, there's so many parts of the organization that sort of come together so that, you know, users have good tools to use. And I've been seeing it both as an engineer, you know, when I'm on call to when, you know, there's different components that might be involved within Microsoft um, to fix an issue and also sort of just observing how, you know, these collaborations happen and also driving some of these collaborations for new features. I've heard you mention, Ganesh, a couple of times the Azure Event Grid. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us more about that? Because I, I've only heard it about it from you. So tell us more about it. Sure, yeah. And hopefully you'll hear about it from more people as well <laughs> in the future. So EventGrid is this platform in Azure that in simple terms just makes it easy for you to consume events in various Azure resources. And during my internship, 
project in AKS, I was lucky to be a part of a team with another intern and my internship manager to build the event grid integration with AKS. So what it does is it makes it easy for you to consume uh, events related to AKS clusters. Mm-hmm. And based on those events, you can create new workflows as well. So the event we've started out with is new Kubernetes versions being available. Uh, on for your AKS cluster. So if you are using AKS with event grid, you will be notified of this event of new Kubernetes versions being available and you can create workflows based on that. So you can maybe test out, you know, in a test region or you can just test out your workloads with the new Kubernetes versions to make sure, mm-hmm. you know, everything's fine and it's upgrading properly. It makes, gives you more confidence there. And also this integration that we worked on provides a sort of this platform to make even more workflows based on like other events as well. So for me personally, it was very exciting too, because uh, this was an internship project uh, initially and, you know, engineers worked on it after the internship as well. So it was exciting because it was very user facing feature and I was able to see that, you know, it launched in public preview and, you know, I was quite satisfied to see, you can see it on the website and people can use it uh, and, that was also a great example of a very impactful internship project. So, um, you know, I think there's more more to come as well. Other engineers are working on this integration more. So, you know, okay, stay tuned. <laughs> Can you share a link with us to put in the show notes? I think that will really help. Yeah, definitely. Okay, to to share with others that may be interested in this. Okay, okay. Mm-hmm. So we talked about Kubernetes quite a bit. And I'm wondering now, going back to the beginning, having all that history and you have you being part of it, Brendan, why do you think Kubernetes became so important? Yeah, I mean, I think part of it is a reflection of the realities of cloud-based distributed system development. And, and I think that you can, I think that a lot of the important ideas that are in Kubernetes, you can see pre-existed Kubernetes, right? And, and so like, I think that it's almost a byproduct of its environment, rather than a transformational... I think it crystallized a lot of stuff that was going on in the industry. So, you know, prior to Kubernetes, people like Netflix were talking a lot about immutable infrastructure, but they were doing it with VMs, and they were building a lot of kind of orchestration-ish tools, but they were doing it with virtual machines, and tools like Puppet and Chef and Salt were thinking about orchestrating, but they weren't online. They were sort of one-time, like blast it across your infrastructure and then hope that it stays up. It, it didn't have that sort of self-healing kind of aspect to it. And so I think that what Kubernetes did is it really crystallized a lot of the ideas that were bubbling around about how you do cloud-based infrastructure. It added some things in terms of online self-healing that you know were in part related to our own experiences with not wanting to get woken up in the middle of the night and my own experience with control loops and robotics and, and, you know, balancing systems and things like that. But I think while all of that is important and useful, I think the thing that really sort of made Kubernetes the thing that did it as opposed to any el- anything else, because I think it's really important for everybody to remember, a lot of people weren't in the ecosystem at the time, but there was five or six or seven or eight different systems that were sort of trying to do the same things that Kubernetes did. And over time, you know, over a couple of years, that winnowed down to a single solution. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that, you know, that it, it wasn't that Kubernetes was unique in the ideas that it was trying to push forward. But I think it was really unique 
in building extensibility in from the ground up and building a really strong, vibrant multi-vendor community and a welcoming community and a strong ecosystem. You mentioned the ecosystem earlier, building a really strong ecosystem of other people who were dependent on its success, right? If you look at machine learning today, every single machine learning system that's out there is using Kubernetes. And so that means that every single AI system that's out there has a, almost a requirement that Kubernetes be successful, right? They're motivated to make sure that Kubernetes is successful because that's the framework that they step up from, right? So building that ecosystem of people who weren't necessarily interested in container orchestration, but needed a foundation to build on, I think that eventually becomes a network effect that you know, turns these things into something that has staying power. Um, because at this point, you know, you could sort of imagine something maybe better or different, but there's so much invested in that ecosystem that the switching costs are extremely high. And so I think that's why we've seen it take legs. And I think the thing is, because we've built an open ecosystem and a vendor-neutral ecosystem with the Cloud Native Compute Foundation, no one is super motivated to try and disrupt it, right? Like, it's just way easier to become part of it, and it is a very neutral place. And so that also helps with the stability of it. Yeah. I definitely do see Kubernetes becoming that uh, basically tide uh, that lifted all the boats, right? It became the sea, <laughs> the tide. So, well, you can replace it, good luck, but that's a lot of effort. It's a lot of time, it's a lot of investment, and, and why do that? I mean, there's, there's... Yeah, and I think it's a lot of stuff that... Be, I mean, people would rather be working on the next thing. Exactly. They'd yeah. rather be building their exciting application rather than worrying about the infrastructure. And I think that's great, right? And I do think it's really important to know that, like, it really was the ecosystem. I think people sort of say, oh, you know, you created this thing and it was so successful and all this sort of stuff. And I, and I really always want to everybody to say and to be clear about the fact that like we sort of started the ball rolling but it was this community that did it and it is the broader ecosystem that did it right it's the prometheuses of the world and the uh, all of the cloud native compute foundation projects that created the actual thing that people use right kubernetes is a part of it but it's the breadth of the ecosystem that that is the thing that i think really delivered the staying power and the and the motivation and differentiated it, frankly, from all of the other yeah. other equivalent things in the time. So continuing to think about the ecosystem and about all the other projects that are in this ecosystem, Kubernetes is an important one, but by no means the only one. What are the other projects that you're using, paying close attention to, finding interesting? And I'm wondering about you, Ganesh, right now. What is it? Yeah, that's a great question. I think there's a lot of so many projects and you know you know mm -hmm. the meme about the cloud native compute foundation like yeah. all the projects there right so i think i'm still navigating that ocean of projects and you haven't finished yet right you're still you're still figuring out have not, have not. <laughs> yes yes i think there's two sort of uh projects that i've been uh more interested in learning and using uh, recently. One is around container acceleration, so speeding up container image pulls and starts. Uh, that's pretty interesting. There's some cool open source projects uh, out there in terms of doing lazy image pulling and so on. So sort of uh, experimenting with those now. So that's been quite fun. And just very recently, you know, my manager and I were just talking about it and he also suggested about looking into like Wasm, Wazi uh, sort of projects uh, in that space. So I am 
also just sort of dabbling in that and trying to learn more about it. So those are things I'm going to do going forward. Yeah. For your listeners, Wasm is WebAssembly. Yeah, wasm.dev. Yeah, we have mentioned it a couple of times. I find it very oh, cool. interesting. Yeah, uh, but uh, I, I haven't dug into it myself. Like, why do you think that is important? Because I keep hearing about it, but I'm still missing, like, why is it the important part? Yeah, I think there's a couple different reasons why it's important. I have some folks on my team who have been, you know, Microsoft is a member of the Bytecode Alliance, which is the foundation that's coming up around WASM on the server side and, and the WASI spec, the WebAssembly server interface, systems interface. I think it's important because one of the things that we hear from our customers is that they want cloud to edge coherency and consistency. They want to be able to take a machine learning model and learn it in the cloud, but bring it down to a $2 IoT device, right? a microcontroller class device. And prior to WASM, really the only way to do that probably would be to write C or C++. Right? And C and C++ have all kinds of issues in terms of, I mean, they're, practically every language that has come afterwards is a reflection of some of the challenges of C and C++. Right? And so I think WASM is interesting because it has that ability to move from cloud-based workloads all the way down to edge-based workloads. It's a pretty language-independent sandbox where you can target it from Python or the .NET team is doing a bunch of work to target it from .NET. You can target it from Go. You can target it from Rust and obviously C and C++ also. And then I think the other aspect of it that is really interesting to me is that it represents an opportunity to rethink like what is the minimal systems interface for an application workload, right? So instead of, like, if you look at containers, they just take whatever the kernel gives them, right? And there's security features like capabilities and things like that to kind of opt yourself in and out of, but, like, it still sees files as streams of bytes. And it doesn't understand things like uh, event grid that, that Ganesh was mentioning earlier. And I think there's an opportunity to say, actually, like in terms of security and in terms of cloud applications, maybe we want a different system abstraction layer and we want to code against a different systems interface than an operating system that, frankly, is based on 40-year-old concepts. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. And so I think there's something there. I mean, I think it's still very early days and experimental. And you know, I talked, we talked a little bit about productivity and tool chain and the comprehensive things that Microsoft can do, the developer experience for WebAssembly right now is pretty primitive. Right. And unless you're targeting it from a couple of different languages, like it reminds me of Linux in like the late 90s when it was like, good luck. Here's a bunch of docs and good luck. Yeah. Right. So I think Microsoft has an opportunity to not just look at it from a cloud perspective, but also look at it from a tooling perspective mm -hmm. and help people you know, make it easier for people who just want to write Python code and have it run in a WebAssembly sandbox, for example. I think there's one other attribute that I want to add about the culture of open source within Brandon's Zork and also in AKS. I think AKS uses so many open source projects internally. And when they find issues, you know, team members do file bugs, make fixes and so on. And I think uh, I've observed that that is part of uh, the culture in AKS and also overall in Brandon's org too. And I think... That is something uh, amazing, and I uh, did not really expect that you know 
Microsoft would be so open to open source and encourage uh, so many engineers to actually contribute to open source. And even when I see projects internally, I think there is a question of, can we start this as an open source project? You know, how do we contribute and make this open source? And even when you make decisions about what technologies to use, uh, I've observed that, you know, there is this bias towards using open source tools and technologies. And I think that's uh, something pretty cool uh, to see and what I had not expected initially, but it's a very open culture. That almost sounds like a key takeaway because as we were preparing to wrap up, I was going to ask about your key takeaways. So uh, you can still think about yours, Ganesh, but I'm thinking uh, about you, Brandon, as we prepare to wrap up, what do you think is the key takeaway for the listener that stuck with us all the way to the end? Yeah, I mean, I think a couple different. Going back to the beginning, the discussion about organizations, I think that my key takeaway anyway is that if you're going to be, as you lead organizations, ensuring that you have a sense of you know what's going on in each of your teams and you provide opportunities for, for personal contacts and, and influence and and helping answer questions for people throughout the organization is just critical to building a healthy organization culture. You know, people will surface things in one-on-ones that, that otherwise just don't percolate up to you. And you have an opportunity as well when people come in to hear their perspective, hear that fresh perspective, and, and to influence what they think is important in the organization. And that's critical for setting culture. And then I think on the technology side, I think the takeaway would be... Um, and it's sort of similar, I guess, at some level, that community and ecosystem and building healthy communities and building healthy ecosystems, that's the key to success. Technology is a, is a contributor to that, but, but lots of really great technologies have failed because they failed to create an ecosystem. And so that, those would probably be my two, two takeaways. Okay. Ganesh, we have one more. Brandon, too? You have one more left. Go on. I get one more? Yeah, well, 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 Brandon had two. So he had people oh. and he had technology. Ganesh, you mentioned the open source. I'm not sure where that fits in. I mean, I'll let you decide. Uh, but I think I think one more would be perfect. One more takeaway. Hmm, I see a lot of pressure here. <laughs> uh, let's, so I think for me as well, if it's okay, I, I will also structure it in the, the people and technology side. And you can decide whether to add it in the podcast or not. But I think one takeaway from the people side is, I think, uh, being in organizations like KKS and in Microsoft where you can learn from others and learn about various technologies is very helpful, especially like early in career. And uh, being proactive in terms of learning is something that I feel I've, it's been helpful so far and there's a lot more for me to do as well. So uh, that's sort of one takeaway for me personally in my time at Microsoft. And then the technology side, I think the overall uh, cloud native community has, is quite helpful in terms of learning about various technologies. And I think the space is uh, an exciting place to learn about various tools to improve efficiency and productivity. And I see both the managed services that Microsoft provides and the open source technologies as ways to improve uh, productivity for the entire like, tech industry. Those are good ones. Yeah. So thank you very much for that. 
my key takeaway is 1859. Let's see if I can be that first. And then we'll compare ages and let's see how, what is the actual <laughs> time that I have to beat to beat Brendan at my age. That's what I'm thinking. <laughs> so thank you for that. That was a very good one, Brendan. Okay. Well, I had a great time with both of you today. Thank you very much. Uh, I wasn't expecting this, but you made me curious about AKS. And um, that's something which I want to check out. Like it's been many years since I used Azure. Uh, I don't think AKS was a thing when I last used Azure. That's that's how long it's been. And um, I think I want to check it out. So thank you both for inspiring me to do that. It was a great pleasure having you here. And I'm looking forward to next time. Thank you. It's awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah, it was good to have us. Thank you. Thank you for tuning into another episode of ShipIt. Check out our other podcasts for developers at changelog.com slash master. You can connect with like-minded developers via changelog.com slash community. Thank you Fastly for the worldwide low-latency changelog.com. Our listeners love those blazing fast MP3s. The Firecracker VMs and the WireGuard integration are really sweet, Flutter.io. That's it for this week. See you all next week. My closing thought is to give a big shout out to Nabil Suleiman, our guest from episode 46. Nabil is finding podcasts like this one helpful when trying to stay awake at 3am while feeding the baby. The second shout out goes to Marcos Nils for the same reason. Both your pictures taking back 12 years. Thank you for spurring great memories. The journey ahead is beautiful. Enjoy it.